Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Hi, I'm Mary Kay Magstud. I'm an old friend of Seneca Podcast, going right back to its early days a decade ago in Beijing, when I was a correspondent there for PRX's The World, and I'd bike to Seneca's homemade studio in a walk-up apartment off of Chaoyang Lu. These days I'm in San Francisco. You may even hear the foghorns in the background. Back when we were all in Beijing, it was always fun to swap stories and talk about the latest news in China with Kaiser and Jeremy, and also to talk about issues and trends and tensions beneath the surface that deserved more attention, and got it on Seneca. Right from the beginning, Seneca was smart, informed, thought-provoking, provocative, often funny, sometimes irreverent. In other words, as you know, a rewarding listen. At one point back when we were all in Beijing, Kaiser deputized me to guest host an episode on the status of Chinese women in society, in the workplace, and in the law in China. We did a fun farewell episode when I left China in 2013, and I joined Kaiser and Jeremy in the episode relaunching Seneca under SUP China when Kaiser moved back to the States himself. So it's a real pleasure to be invited back to share with you here the first episode of my new nine-episode podcast on China's New Silk Road. To do it, I reported on five continents over the past year and a bit, before COVID. I teamed up with local journalists to learn how China's global ambitions are seen in their country and what impact China's New Silk Road investments are having on the ground. I'm doing this podcast with the Global Reporting Center. It's a nonprofit group founded by former 60 Minutes producer Peter Klein, and it teaches practices and promotes innovation and global journalism. You can check out its reporting projects and partnerships at globalreportingcenter.org. There's also a webpage there for On China's New Silk Road with photos and transcripts. So about the new podcast, you listen to Seneca, so you probably already know about China's New Silk Road or the Belt and Road Initiative, China's effort to build out a belt of land routes and a maritime Silk Road of sea routes connecting China with Europe, Africa, and beyond, even up to the Arctic. This is one of the most sweeping global infrastructure initiatives ever, and most of the world's countries have signed on. So how do people on the receiving end feel about it? And what impact is it having? And what are its chances of succeeding, either on China's terms or as a genuine win-win for both China and the recipient country? You'll find out on China's New Silk Road. The first episode, called The China Dream, starts now. You are living through something epic. 
If you're thinking climate change, certainly. COVID-19, sure. But also, China's efforts to reshape the world with one of the biggest infrastructure initiatives the world has ever seen. It's called the New Silk Road, and since it launched in 2013, most of the world's countries have signed on to be part of it. The New Silk Road's translation from Chinese is the Belt and Road, a belt of land routes and a maritime silk road of sea routes. It's roads, railways, ports, industrial parks, fiber optic networks, and more. A new architecture of global trade and global power, built with Chinese loans and usually by Chinese construction teams. It's President Xi Jinping's signature plan, enshrined in China's constitution. It's part of what he calls the China Dream. And at a huge military parade in 2019, celebrating 70 years of Chinese Communist Party rule, President Xi called out, Long live the Great People's Republic of China. Long live the Great Communist Party of China. Long live the great Chinese people. The literal saying in Chinese for long live is Wan Sui, 10,000 years. It's what subjects used to say to an emperor, wishing that he'd stay on the throne forever. President Xi has gotten rid of term limits in China, so he just might. And he's working toward a goal of China leading what he calls a global community of common destiny— One world, one dream, on China's terms. The New Silk Road is part of that plan, and Chinese PR has used an old Coca-Cola jingle to sell it as a win-win that'll bring peace, goodwill, and a better future. I like to build a world, a road, and furnish it with love. Grow apple trees and I'm Mary Kay Magstad. I was a correspondent in China for 15 years, first for NPR, then for PRX's The World. I've reported in every Chinese province and in almost every country in Asia and some in Africa on how China's rise is affecting individual lives and global trends. And for this nine-part podcast on China's New Silk Road, I've teamed up with the Global Reporting Center and with local journalists on almost every continent to look at how China's global ambition is seen around the world and at the impact Chinese investment is having on the ground, starting in China. The old Silk Road brought caravans of traders to China, Indians, Arabs, Persians, and it brought Chinese goods to the world, The Old Silk Road was actually many routes by land and by sea, and Chengdu in western China was a stop on one of the land routes. It was known for its convivial tea houses and for its exquisite silk brocades, so prized that they were sometimes used as currency on the Silk Road. Chengdu today has 16 million people and one of the fastest-growing economies of any city in China, thanks in part to many of China's factories moving west in recent decades. But schoolchildren here, and elsewhere in China, still learn how to make silk. One day, somebody handed you a very small piece of paper with some dots on it, and those are the eggs. 
And then you just put it in a shoebox. And put in mulberry leaves. And then it just hatched. At first it looked like black thread, tiny, tiny, duck black, and then start to grow. And it turned white and fat and gross. And then they weave cocoons. But after a while, I feel, okay, there's a dead worm inside. So I think my mom cut it open and then got rid of the, the body and just kept the silk. Shuang Li is a native of Chengdu, and she did all this as a school kid here. She's now a journalist. She worked for a decade for Reuters news agency in Shanghai, and these days she lives in the San Francisco Bay Area, as do I. When she was on a visit home to Chengdu the summer before COVID hit, I visited too, so we could look together at the role Chengdu is playing on China's new Silk Road. For starters, it's one of the many examples in China of how new infrastructure done well can transform people's lives. I think it's quite amazing just to think about it, how fast everything is going. We're at the Chengdu East high-speed rail station, watching travelers roll their suitcases, set to travel around the country in a fraction the time it used to take. It's part of a whole high-speed rail network that sprung up in China over the past decade. I remember the early years when uh, China was building the uh, high-speed rail and a lot of people were very skeptical of this is such a huge investment, how can you get back? But then just within a few years, it completely changed the way that people travel. And the progress has been dramatic since Shuang was a kid in the 1980s and 90s when China's economy was just taking off and most Chinese still lived in the countryside. Now, most live in cities and most have moved out of poverty. Every time we go around outside of the city a little bit and we see all these buildings, my mom always worries about the farmland. She's always like, where the farmers go? What happens to our food? Because Chengdu traditionally used to be the one of the bread baskets here, because we have the the great irrigation system that it never gets flooded really, so there's always a good harvest. But now all this good farmland are buildings. Lots of buildings, miles of office and apartment high rises connected with new highways and a new subway system. And this is a story that's happening all over China. Tens of millions of Chinese villagers and farmers have had to move, not always happily and sometimes violently, to make way for this new urban life. And as Chuang shows me around a well-heeled shopping street where she used to go as a kid, when it was more chaotic, with more people getting around on bicycles and few having much money, Chuang says life has gotten better in a few ways. I'd say the air now is much better than when I was growing up, because I remember when I was growing up, If you look around, you don't see any green leaves. The only green leaves you see are in the spring when the new ones are coming out. And in the summer? In the summer, they're dark. They're black. Jeez. Because back then, China was getting much more of its energy from coal. Coal still makes up most of China's energy mix, but it's using more wind, solar, and hydropower than it used to. Still, the state-owned companies behind the coal industry remain powerful. And for all the talk of a clean, green, new silk road, even now, its projects include a couple hundred coal-fired power plants. One was a $2 billion project for a coal power station in Kenya with a 700-foot smokestack. Protests broke out, 
and stopped it. The poorest of the poor don't just want to have the same model of development where, yeah, they can turn the lights on, but then they're going to choke and die um, an early death because of air pollution. We don't need to be making those decisions anymore. Natalie Bridgman Fields is the founder and executive director of Accountability Council in San Francisco. It's a nonprofit legal advocacy group, and it's helped local communities around the world protect their environment and civil rights on the New Silk Road and beyond. All around the world, communities are being impacted by Belt and Road projects in a variety of ways. Uh, Social impacts, forced displacement, environmental impacts, and communities are coming to us and a number of our civil society colleagues with grievances that they need redressed and are seeking solutions related to the Chinese investment in particular in those projects. And Natalie says the Chinese government is at least sometimes listening, including to push back at home. She's attended meetings in China with officials from Chinese state banks that make the New Silk Road loans. And she recalls what she sees as an emblematic exchange. The China Development Bank representative there, a deputy director, made a statement that China is investing in projects in places where survival is an issue, very poor countries, where those countries don't have the luxury, just like China didn't have the luxury of making decisions about doing clean finance or green finance because survival was an issue in the Chinese provinces, and that basic infrastructure and the coal-fired power plants of the world are needed for that survival. And a Chinese lawyer in the audience at a prominent Chinese law firm stood up and really challenged that, saying that that's antiquated thinking, that we don't anymore have to make these false decisions between sustainable investment and survival, that you can have sustainable investment to promote survival of the poorest of the poor. And not recognizing that, she says, carries both financial risks and reputational risks that are already costing China. In Kenya, for instance, there's been pushback not only to the coal-fired power plants, but also to China's presence overall because of what some Kenyans have complained is racist behavior by some Chinese working in Kenya. This is all the Kenyans, like a monkey. Even Uhulu, Kenyatta, Mm. all of them. It's like a monkey. Yeah, sure. The guy who's calling Kenyans monkey people here is Liu Jiaqi, a young Chinese manager of a motorcycle shop in Kenya, when his Kenyan employee secretly recorded this conversation in 2018. I don't like here, like a monkey people. I don't like, talk with them. Smell is bad, and poor, and foolish, and black. The employee took it to Kenyan authorities. They deported Liu Jiaqi for racism. The story got picked up by several Kenyan news organizations, including K24. Its reporter here is quoting a statement by the Chinese embassy in Nairobi. The statement went further to state that the remarks expressed in the racist video did not represent the views of the vast majority of Chinese nationals who are required to abide by the host country's law and make positive contribution to the friendship and cooperation between the two countries. Kenyans on social media, though, expressed dissatisfaction over the arrest and deportation, demanding that Liu be tried in Kenya so as to have a better experience of the very Kenyans he detests in jail. It's not the image China's been trying to project on the new Silk Road. And Natalie says losing trust and goodwill can affect the bottom line. 
Reputational risks are business risks. So there are two things. It's both having to repair reputations as is a cost, and then the actual infrastructure uh, and investment projects that are being stranded, stopped, prevented from going forward and creating financial returns that are a secondary type of business risk, financial risk. So as we engage with the Chinese government, we make the argument that there is really a business case for having accountability offices, just as communities have a real need for them to defend their rights and protect their environment. But give China's leaders credit for this. They have a record of being pragmatic. Former leader Deng Xiaoping used to call it crossing the river by feeling the stones. Figure it out as you go along and course correct when you need to. Because neither China's economic boom over the past four decades nor the New Silk Road now started out with a fully formed, detailed plan. Each had a goal in mind, but it was flexible about how to get there. The New Silk Road is about securing China's place as a global leader and helping China's slowing economy continue to grow. And on the New Silk Road, Chengdu is a dry port for one of the trains going all the way to Europe. Its facilities are about 20 miles north of the city center. We're on Xiangdao Avenue. Fragrance Island. And there's, we just passed a logistics company. I guess this is pretty much a purpose-built area. It used to be farmland. More containers now as we drive along. Wujin Global Logistics, China Logistics Company, China Railway Freight. We turn a corner to find the train tracks in front of us and a new Silk Road train passing through, headed west to Central Asia and possibly all the way to Europe. As we watch it roll past, Shuang notices a sign on the railway bridge. You're forbidden to walk, lie down on the track. Okay. You can't go under the train or climb the train or jump off the train. Yeah. All useful knowledge. To pick up other useful knowledge, Shuang visited representative offices here for European cities and regions. The representatives declined to talk on the record, but some did chat with her on background. What they were telling me is that they don't use the train a lot. They were saying the customs here is not not as good, so people will still want to use the sea and go through ports of Shanghai or Tianjin. Oh, because people here they haven't they don't know how to deal with all sorts of various of goods, so it can take them a long time to clear the customs. Overland cargo transport from China through Central Asia to Europe doesn't have a really strong strategic advantage on cost or speed together. Eli Sweet is vice chair of the American Chamber of Commerce of southwestern China. He used to work for Chevron PetroChina. We were shipping tens, twenties of shipping containers every month, thousands of tons of cargo every month, every week. And it wasn't going by rail through the Silk Road to Europe, even though that rail line was already open at the time. Mostly that was used by Volvo for shipping car parts. If you want something fast, 
air cargo shipment is still a lot more effective. And if you want something that's gonna be the cheapest, sea freight is definitely the most cost effective. I mean, I understand the symbolic importance of opening that trade route, and I do think there are certain industries for whom it is useful, but because it's neither the fastest nor the cheapest, so it's a weird middle ground in terms of the benefits that it offers. But some Chinese entrepreneurs are finding ways to make the new Silk Road train work for them. At a luxury car showroom in a scruffy Chengdu neighborhood, we walk past Mercedes-Benz's, BMW's, Land Rover's, high-end Toyota's, and sit down with Zhang Yang, a co-owner of this business that imports these cars for affluent Chinese buyers. Zhang Yang says he started out importing from the United States and Canada. But when the trade war started, he switched to using the New Silk Road train to import luxury cars from Central Asia, where they're cheaper. He says he's also been experimenting with importing fruit and meat from Uzbekistan, since his trade in American cherries and meats dried up in the trade war. Between the trade war and the economic hit from COVID-19, he says his luxury car business hasn't been doing as well as it used to either. Zhang says he worries about how the United States and China have been getting along. He's done a lot of business in the United States. He goes by the name Michael when he's stateside. He's bought a house in the U.S. His son was born in the U.S. So he figures he knows America pretty well. But he says, I don't think President Trump knows China very well. Even with the trade war, Chinese people thought positively of the United States. We're alike. We're big countries, huge markets. And we're actually a very welcoming people. But Chuang says it seems like Chinese attitudes toward the United States have been shifting more lately, both because of what many Chinese see as the Trump administration's aggression toward China and because of how the United States has dealt with COVID-19. She says many Chinese expected better. If they look at the world, China has dealt with this very quickly. We're the first to reopen. Also, if you look at the U.S., and if you only look at messages from WeChat and Chinese media of how the U.S. is dealing with this, it's a very big failure. WeChat is a social mobile app used by 1.2 billion people, almost all of them Chinese. And it's a combination of like WhatsApp or Facebook, Twitter. It's everything combined. It can be used for digital payment, and it's been subsidized by the Chinese government since it was created in 2012. All this concentration of data is handy for the Chinese government as it develops a social credit system that rates not just how quickly you pay your bills, but how politically reliable you are. And that collection of data, including data of Americans, is why, President Trump has said, he signed executive orders banning WeChat and the Chinese viral video app TikTok from operating in the United States, unless they're sold to U.S. companies. That's a huge deal, and quite inconvenient for Chinese expats trying to stay in touch with family and friends back home. But Chuang acknowledges a steady diet of WeChat can distort reality. The WeChat platform is heavily censored. And then a lot of the articles trying to talk about issues sensibly, reasonably, get censored. 
So that only leaves one side of the message on the platform. So when President Trump kept calling COVID-19 Kung Flu or the Chinese virus, Shuang noticed that fear spread on WeChat and Chinese in the San Francisco Bay Area started to form self-defense units. So the idea is if the Americans turn on us and if the police don't show up fast enough, you call in the WeChat group, call for help, and your neighbor will show up. So each WeChat group can take 500 people. But in some cases, there are so many people in one zip code. They have to uh, set up several chat groups for one zip code. And I was curious because I lived there at the same time and I did not have that kind of fear. So I wonder where, where does that fear come from? So where do you think it comes from? My theory is that if they only read messages from WeChat, if that's their main source of information, that's where their fear coming from. That's a problem anywhere. If you listen to just one news source that spreads disinformation and censors dissenting views. In truth, in China for decades, certainly over the years that I was there, Americans and Chinese got along pretty well. And over the years, Chinese have absorbed a lot of American culture. These urban dancers in Chengdu are just one slice of that. And in this video of a dance-off, they're really good. They're students at Sinostage. It's a dance school the American Chamber of Commerce vice chair, Eli Sweet, set up with his wife. China has been an incredibly welcoming and incredibly safe place for foreigners and Americans to live during the whole period that I've been here, 13 years now. And so... Even at times when diplomatic tensions between the U.S. and China have been higher, on a personal level, I've never felt anything other than wholeheartedly welcomed and uh, totally safe and and happy. So, So when you go home and you talk to family and friends and acquaintances and just people you strike up a conversation with, what are the things that strike you most in terms of misunderstandings you hear about China? People imagine China to be much more politically oppressive or authoritarian than the experience for the day-to-day civilian actually seems to be. In fact, Eli says, living in China has made him look at American politics differently. The amount of angst and political conflict that I see in the U.S., is much higher than what I see in China. And, and it's something that has been a little bit alarming to me in recent years because I've always felt myself to be a huge believer in the value of democracy, to see how poorly served the American polity has been by the democratic system in America. It's led me to sort of question some of the assumptions that I had about how necessary fully democratically engaged populations are for having a peaceful and prosperous free market society. The million or so Uyghurs who have been detained in Western China might push back on that, as might Chinese who have experienced tighter controls under Xi Jinping and stiffer penalties for criticizing the government. It used to be that the Chinese government used online gripes as a way of staying current on public opinion, even as the government managed hundreds of thousands of protests over the past couple of decades, sometimes peacefully often by force. Now, surveillance is everywhere, 
online and in person through surveillance cameras. The tighter controls mean many people have learned to be more careful about what they say and where. But there are still gripes, including about all the money the government is spending on the New Silk Road, when there's still plenty of need at home. This woman works with a property development company in Chengdu. She only wanted to give her family name, Dai. She told Shuang, I know we've done a lot for Africa. Maybe we've given them too much. Maybe it's good for us in the long run, but it seems like we're getting too little in return right now. Mostly, we're just giving them aid. China has invested a lot in Africa over the past 15 years, and that's helped Africa become economically the second fastest growing region in the world after Asia. But most of China's New Silk Road funding in Africa is loans, not aid. And when the COVID pandemic hit, many developing countries in Africa and beyond asked for debt relief. Many remembered too well how Sri Lanka got overstretched with debt to China, and to pay some of it back, it had to give China a 99-year lease to a port and an area around it the size of Manhattan. Still, China was slow to agree to debt relief until the G20 made it a policy and China went along. Even then, Shuang remembers how China's state-run media played it. I was looking at one article on the Chinese media talking about the forgiveness of debts. That article in Chinese was positioning ourselves as, oh, we're doing this such a great thing. It's not because you caught for it, but we're, we're so generous, so we're doing it. China's taken heat for being less than generous with some New Silk Road countries, for charging relatively high interest rates with short repayment schedules compared to the World Bank and the Asian Development Bank, to countries that may not have the capacity to pay them back that quickly, or in the face of COVID-19, maybe not at all. If China has come in, they come in and they've lent irresponsibly, that is inconsistent with the debt sustainability profile of that country, then why should they, why should they get paid back? This is Larry Greenwood. He's a former vice president of the Asian Development Bank, and before that, a U.S. diplomat for 30 years. In the midst of COVID, we had a socially distanced chat over Zoom. It reinforces the, the point that we need to be out there offering, we meaning the West, not just the United States, offering an alternative to Chinese financing. And that predatory financing isn't on its own the perfect weapon because it's, it can easily backfire. China's government has protested that it's not intentionally laying debt traps for vulnerable countries. And Larry gives China credit for doing many things right when it comes to building infrastructure at home and abroad. So China's very good at infrastructure. Uh, they build it fast. They build it pretty good. And they also, when there is the appropriate framework uh, surrounding a, a project, they can build it clean, you know, no corruption, environmentally sound, with good resettlement uh, compensation. And uh, they were, for uh, myself, they were by far the, the best borrower in terms of implementation of projects that I had in the Asian Development Bank. There wasn't anybody that came even close. And he says the China-created Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank runs on standards similar to the World Bank. But Larry says China's state bank lenders sometimes go in more aggressively without doing what the World Bank and the Asian Development Bank do Make sure that recipient countries have policies in place so their new infrastructure will make money and they can pay back the loan. 
China's stance is that it doesn't impose conditions. It doesn't interfere in other countries' internal affairs. But Larry says, without needed policy changes, some projects don't have much of a chance. The problem is if politics becomes too much of an element of what they're doing, if they're you know, only doing projects to appeal to the leaders or only doing projects that are important for their kind of geostrategic interests because they need connections to particular places, the country is not going to get the same kind of developmental effectiveness out of the project that they would otherwise. And that's not good. So it's going to be how they do it, really, that matters. How they've done it up until now has been a mixed bag. Some local populations complain that government elites make the deals without considering what local people need and want. There have been complaints about unsustainable debt and jokes about how some of these projects feel more like a double win for China than a genuine win-win for each country. That led President Xi to shift tones from a somewhat triumphalist one in the first Belt and Road Summit in 2017 to this at the second Belt and Road Summit two years later. We must implement the principle of extensive consultation, joint contribution, and shared benefits to see that all have their voices heard, all reach their full potential, and all stand to benefit. The BRI must be open, green, and clean, and follows a high-standard, people-centered, and sustainable approach. The same message gets carried to Belt and Road gatherings further afield, like this one in Hong Kong. A very warm welcome to the second edition of the Belt and Road International Food Expo 2019 Hong Kong. Diplomats lined up on stage to clink champagne glasses with Chinese officials. Cheers together. Ready? Three, two, one. Cheers! The Europeans on stage looked a bit bemused as gold confetti rained down. After the toasting ceremony, we'll be now proceeding to the signing of several memorandums of understanding by the representatives of our country pavilions and witnessed by their government trade departments. Once all that wrapped up, everyone spilled into the exhibition hall, where hundreds of vendors from dozens of Belt and Road countries were promoting goods like rice from Vietnam, chocolate spread from Indonesia, wine from Slovenia, frozen food from Pakistan, and produce from Peru. Peru's consul general to Hong Kong, Sergio Avila Traverso, was measured in his thoughts about the Belt and Road. The one Belt, one road, uh, let's say in the future, could be a good uh, system. Now I think it's a very young, uh, (laughs) I would say, organization, schema. In the United States and certainly in the current administration, there's some anxiety, I think, about the Belt and Road. And, you know, the political aspirations, perhaps, behind the economic build-out. What do you think Americans need to understand about the Belt and Road from your perspective? I think also the United States was one of the open market leader historically, no? And I think uh, the world is changing, uh, it's a globalization, and I think uh, the world is uh, for all, (laughs) and uh, yes, the market is uh, big, and I think we all can survive, and we can all have uh, good advantages. Over at the Philippines booth, the Philippines Consul General to Hong Kong, Antonio Morales, said much the same. That's interesting, 
Given how friendly Philippines President Rodrigo Duterte has been to China, despite the two countries' conflicting claims in the South China Sea. Well, as they say, in the past, all roads led to Rome. We don't think that now it will be all roads leading to Beijing, but that there will be complementarities among the players in the region. It will be a more complicated, complex uh, world with many centers of economic, political, military powers. And sometimes uh, one is preeminent over the others in certain areas and at certain points. But it's not as simple as seeing as one dominating the others. Which might just be a blind spot for China's leaders. President Xi Jinping has worked hard to strengthen his own power within China and China's power in the world, including here in Hong Kong, where a new national security law has led to a clampdown on criticism of the Chinese government, with arrests ranging from teenage pro-democracy protesters to the head of one of Hong Kong's biggest media companies, Jimmy Lai. A year before that law was passed, I talked with pro-democracy protesters who were then out in the streets. A pastor in his 60s, who asked that his name not be used, predicted what would happen if a national security law came into force. So people would be living in fear. They would probably begin to have self-censorship on their freedom, uh, on their speech and everything. Probably the freedom of press would be gone too. As we talked, the crowd of protesters swelled, with some protesters helping others over concrete barriers and handing out masks so surveillance cameras wouldn't as easily be able to identify who was protesting. About an hour after our conversation, Hong Kong police used tear gas and rubber bullets on this crowd. It was the first time they'd used rubber bullets. But here, in this moment, in June 2019, the pastor tells me he's surprised the Chinese government is doing all this now, since it had promised that from the 1997 handover from British to Chinese rule, Hong Kong would be able to keep its own system of governance, its own way of life, for 50 years. But it seems like um, the Chinese government can't wait already. And when it all started, a lot of people thought I was here for the handover, covering it. A lot of people were saying, you know, maybe Hong Kong will help change China. Yeah, I had the same dream, too. I was a little bit younger then, but... um, We all. Yeah. But um, 22 years later, I don't think that's the case. It's getting worse. So it's, it's a little ironic that this is happening at a moment when China's really trying to make a case to the world that, you know, China should build out the Belt and Road, that, you know, the center of global trade should be China, that, you know, it, it'll build infrastructure in all these different countries and everyone should trust China and, and believe that it's going to be a win-win. What, if anything, do you think Hong Kong's experience should tell people who are considering getting into that kind of a relationship with China? This would be sensitive. Well, I think you need to realize that they can say one thing and do another. So you better watch out. Around the world, people are weighing the costs and benefits of partnering with China on the new Silk Road. In some cases, it's going well, and you'll hear about that in this podcast series. In other cases, initial enthusiasm has been tempered by doubts, born of experience dealing with China. There are also concerns about recent Chinese aggression in the South China Sea, on China's border with India, in making new territorial claims in Bhutan, 
and even in rhetoric called wolf-warrior diplomacy. This was named after Chinese action films in which those who criticize China pay. And China's foreign minister, Wang Yi, has defended this approach. We never pick a fight or bully others, but we have principles and guts. We will push back against any deliberate insult to resolutely defend our national honor and dignity. So Chinese diplomats have taken to Twitter, slamming those who suggest that China didn't do enough to stop COVID-19 from becoming a pandemic. Nonsense, some have said. Maybe the U.S. military brought the virus here. Or maybe it came from Italy. Maybe we'll boycott your products until you stop saying that. Schwang's not a fan of the wolf warrior approach. Yeah, very aggressive, pointing fingers at everybody and targeting the U.S., targeting Australia. It makes me feel like after this, we really don't have friends left. Like, what are we showing the world who we are? Big powers bullying others rarely plays well. Americans have learned that over time. They've also learned that once you're a big enough power to affect the lives of people beyond your borders, those people are going to have opinions about you, and not always positive ones. Chinese are still learning how to take criticism about their country's actions in the world. This thin skin thing, they're going to have to come to terms with this. This is a major problem. (laughs) This is Larry Greenwood again, the former U.S. diplomat and former Asian Development Bank vice president. I have so many friends in China that I, even privately they just explode with rage you know, at some of the things that are said about them. Many, okay, many of them are not true. But you know, if, if you want to be world leader, live with it. Because that's, that's what world leadership is all about. People are going to hate your guts. World, world leaders are not popular. <laughs> Within China, it's taken as a given that China has earned the right to lead through its long history and old Silk Road days as a powerful economy and innovator, through enduring what Chinese schoolchildren learn was humiliation at the hands of foreign powers, from Britain's opium wars to Japanese occupation, and through China's own extraordinary economic transformation over the past four decades, which many Chinese genuinely celebrate. At the military parade celebrating 70 years of Communist Party rule, Crowds cheered, tanks rolled, and Xi Jinping smiled. It's taken effort to consolidate his power and silence his rivals and critics, and it's not over. A new political purge is underway. We must continue to consolidate and develop this People's Republic and continue our struggle to achieve the two centenary goals and to realize the Chinese dream of national rejuvenation. To achieve those goals, President Xi has called for military-civilian fusion, merging China's military and civilian efforts and technologies, and having state enterprises and private companies work more closely together to help China rise in the world, and to achieve President Xi's version of the China dream. But individual Chinese have long had their own dreams, some not so different from the American dream. As the saying goes in China, 
People can sleep in the same bed, but they'll have different dreams. And outside of China, on the New Silk Road, China's leaders are discovering what a challenge it is to make people dream your dream, much less accept it as their reality. Over the next eight episodes, we'll look at how all this is playing out in a few representative countries in Asia, Europe, Latin America, Africa, the Arctic, and on China's digital Silk Road. For this episode, many thanks to partner reporter Shuang Li, who is also our Chinese language researcher for this series. Our editor is Dave Rummel. Our sound designer is Tina Toby. Our executive producer is Christine Brandt. On China's New Silk Road is a production of the Global Reporting Center, a nonprofit group that teaches, practices, and promotes innovation and global journalism. Peter Klein is the GRC's founder. Philippe Lebion, a GRC partner and geography professor at the University of British Columbia, provided valuable input to this series. On China's New Silk Road was made possible by generous funding from Humanity United and from the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council of Canada. You can find photos, transcripts, and more at globalreportingcenter.org. While you're there, check out other great journalism from the Global Reporting Center. Next up, the new Silk Road train that comes from Chengdu heads on to neighboring Kazakhstan, and so will we. There, some people are bullish about what Chinese investment can do for the local economy, while others are concerned about how China's treating its Uyghur and Kazakh Muslim population across the border. Their approach, it's extremely misguided and it's just extremely destructive because they're creating this horrible node for just decades to come where you're just going to have a lot of broken people who don't know what to do with their you know, frustrations. Paving the Old Silk Road, next on China's New Silk Road. I like to...